It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something in your own head. Beat it up and I've got no people. And I'm supposed to clatter with the fear, fight down, make fire in the fire. This is the gangs and the government for hiring the combat site. Like it wasn't coming in a hurry, but the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom! Hey friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an impressive interval of entertainment in an insidious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 650 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a grand old man with a brand new plan, and that's to keep you and your family healthy in times of trouble. And who are you? I am Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and I'm also known as Nurse Amy. And the hostess with the mostest, so adorable that puppies watch videos of her. Together, we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if things fall apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident by a salacious salamander? Well, our attorney says don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when there are black clouds on the horizon, can you find a silver lining? Can you save a life if you had to? Well, you can, you know, if you get the right equipment, supplies, get a little knowledge, and listen to us guys, too. What's up, Buttercup? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so connect with us and show us your stuff. Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And we have a Facebook group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. Awesome. That and is. And our YouTube channel. And our YouTube channel at drbones. Nurse Amy, right? Yep. Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know, that's a lot, but that's not all. Our website at doomandbloom.net has just about everything you need to succeed, even if everything else fails. And you can check us out in our articles 
on the awesome magazine Backwoods Home, which is the absolute top magazine for homesteaders, for preppers, for people who are interested in being self-reliant. And we have a special guest today that I know you're going to enjoy talking to. All right, now, I guess I've convinced you that you need to be medically prepared. So how do you handle medical issues in times of trouble? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Get a copy of our second edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook available on Amazon. It'll give you a head start on keeping your family safe in times of trouble. You'll get all sorts of important tips, and they're all in plain old English that anyone can understand. So put old Dr. Bones and the lovely Nurse Amy in your survival library. Get a copy of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And if you like Kindle, get a Kindle copy available also at Amazon.com. And hey, if you want to know what to do in an epidemic, check out our book, The Ebola Survival Handbook, a New York Times bestseller, also on Amazon. It's about Ebola, but the advice we give it applies to just about any infectious disease. Now, on Monday, South Korea reported its sixth death from Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that's MERS, M-E-R-S, bringing the total number of confirmed cases to 87. More than 2,500 people remain quarantined, either at home or in health facilities, and more than 1,800 schools remain closed. The latest death is that of an 80-year-old man who is receiving treatment at a hospital in Daejeon, South Korea's fifth largest city. Now, among the new cases is that of a teenager, and that is the first school-aged person to be infected, that according to the Health Ministry of South Korea. A Middle East Respiratory Syndrome surfaced about three years ago. It's still not very well understood because the virus is still fairly new. Doctors and scientists really don't know the exact mode of its transmission, but they do know that MERS is caused by a special type of virus called a coronavirus. This virus comes from the same type that caused the SARS epidemic, that's severe acute respiratory syndrome, in Asia some years back. It's been linked to respiratory disease in camels, and most cases have come from Saudi Arabia, indeed, and the Middle East. To date, there have been probably about 1,100 cases of MERS in about 20 countries. It has about a 30% death rate, mostly in the elderly or those who have health issues. In comparison, the mortality from SARS, S-A-R-S, was only about 9 to 12 percent. Now, once infected, the patient begins to show signs of the disease in about 10 to 12 days. Symptoms of MERS include fever, productive cough, nasal congestion, shortness of breath. In some cases, uh, people will have nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, other GI symptoms. If the patient worsens, most of the severe cases occur in patients that are diabetics and Uh, as I said earlier, elderly folk. The MERS virus concerns me because it originates from an area where there are many overseas foreign workers. Uh, Saudi Arabia especially imports a lot of its skilled labor, and as a result, it's begun to have a chance of popping up far from the Middle East, such as in places like South Korea, due to commercial air travel. Now, this includes the United States. There have been actually three documented cases in the United States so far, not in the current epidemic, however. This is unlike the pattern with Ebola, which hasn't been documented outside of Africa or wasn't documented outside of Africa officially. Like Ebola, however, there is no known treatment, no cure for MERS. Many cases where the MERS virus was identified in a patient actually don't involve any symptoms whatsoever. That's good for those patients, but it makes it difficult to identify who's carrying the disease. So how can you protect yourself 
from MERS. Well, there's certainly no list of recommendations specific to the disease, but general precautions against respiratory illness include washing your hands with soap and water. Simple as that. If soap and water is not available, use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Uh, cover your nose and mouth with the tissue when you cough or sneeze, and dispose of those tissues safely. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth with your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick, especially if you don't know what they have. Clean and disinfect counters, doorknobs, and other frequently touched surfaces. Viruses can last on these surfaces for a period of time. It's too early to tell if MERS will be the next great pandemic uh, right now. Uh, the government is saying that there's no evidence of sustainable transmission in the community, but knowledge of good respiratory hygiene and having supplies like masks and gloves will decrease your chance of contracting the disease. In other news, the Pentagon disclosed Wednesday that it inadvertently shipped live anthrax to at least 51 laboratories across the United States and in three foreign countries over the last few years, but still has to determine exactly how it happened, who's to blame, and why it wasn't discussed, uh, discovered earlier, and how much worse the embarrassment is going to get for our folks in the government. Now, one of the few things the Pentagon officials did say that they were sure of is that, well, here we go again, is that the public health is not at risk. The Deputy Defense Secretary, his name is Robert Work, told a Pentagon news conference that they know of no risk to the general public. The, the anthrax was shipped apparently in such low concentrations and such secure packaging that it almost certainly poses no health risk to anyone outside the labs. The anthrax was supposed to have been killed with gamma rays, the same thing that kills you from radiation from nuclear blasts, by technicians before being shipped for use by commercial labs and government facilities in research and the calibration of biohazard sensors. But for reasons yet to be explained, the anthrax remained alive. 31 individuals are receiving antibiotics as a precaution. None are sick at the present time. 19 of the 51 laboratories that received the anthrax have submitted it to the CDC for testing. They say of nine samples fully tested so far, all nine have proven to indeed contain live anthrax. But we'll find more labs, they say, receiving the suspect anthrax than the 51 notified so far since more than 400 master batches of anthrax at four Defense Department locations are responsible for shipping it to commercial labs. The Pentagon is legally prohibited, by the way, I don't know if you know this, from disclosing the names of dozens of commercial laboratories that did receive the anthrax in more than 17 states and the District of Columbia. The scope of the problem has grown almost daily since the Pentagon first acknowledged it on late May and at that time, there were only nine states affected, and now there are close to 17 or 18, 51 labs. This is just another sign, in my opinion, of our laxity with regards to our security in these high-level biosafety labs. Uh, one day, there is going to be human error, and when there is human error, sometimes it may not be as controllable as it has been with, uh, at least apparently, with this issue with anthrax in the United States. We certainly hope that our government officials, our health officials, pay a little more attention to what they are doing with regards to keeping us safe and infection precautions need to be followed to the letter. Human error is going to do us in one day. 
if we don't do otherwise. Hey, we are in the great state of Oregon, and we have been just absolutely privileged to be able to speak at the Mother Earth News Fair that was held in Albany here. It has been just a pleasure to, to travel through the state. We went to the Columbia River Gorge area, saw a lot of the nation's most spectacular waterfalls, did a little hiking, uh, and then we went over to the coast to Astoria, Newport, explored tidal pools, saw lighthouses. I'll tell you, it's a state that has so many beautiful vistas, so many beautiful areas, so much natural wonder that it's difficult to leave. It's a beautiful place. I hope that one day, if you have never visited Oregon, that you will come and enjoy its natural wonders. And if you live in Oregon, you're a lucky, lucky person. That's all I have to say. The Mother Earth News was really an awesome event. Uh, There are a lot of people there. They were interested in our message, and that's not always the case in uh, Green Living Expos, but we really felt warmly received there. We want to thank uh, David Wheeler of Oregon Preppers uh, for coming by and saying hi. He's been a great supporter, and and we appreciate everything that that he's done. Bob Richardson of Thrive Foods came by. Of course, our good friends Dave and Leanie Duffy were there uh, and uh, got really good response to their very, very useful magazine, Backwoods Home. Well, I have to say I completely agree with everything you just said. From the people who visited us to the reception of those who didn't know who we were at Mother Earth News Fair to our wonderful hosts and the hospitality they shared with us um thank you so much duffy family everyone because there was a big barbecue on saturday so again thank you guys so much i just want to talk a just a few seconds about oregon as a state or oregon oregon <laughs> i was told several times that i was pronouncing it wrong so your state is absolutely beautiful we traveled the hood river We saw the Columbia. We saw absolutely spectacular waterfalls. They were breathtaking. I got to FaceTime with my dad so he could share the experience with us. Then we traveled to Astoria, got up early in the morning, and went from tide pool to tide pool during low tide. Absolutely the most beautiful beach I have seen. So thank you guys for letting us come to your state and we hope to get a chance to come back maybe for a little longer vacation and explore more of this beautiful state hey we're going to take a very very short break you're listening to the survival medicine hour with the lovely nurse amy and some old guy dr bones lab was brought to you by piranhas piranhas guppies genetically modified by dr bones to become man's new best friend but hey nobody's perfect Keep one in your home to feed your girlfriend's cat to, or try to cook one for dinner. One of you is definitely going to eat tonight. That's Piranhas, available at fine supervillain hideouts everywhere. Hi, I'm Joe Alden, MD of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 600 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. Along with my wife, nurse practitioner Amy Alden, we're the authors of the Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook, with over 200 five-star reviews. A disaster can strike at any time, and the ambulance may not always be heading in your direction. We've got an entire line of medical kits, supplies, and educational resources that can help you deal with injuries and illness in everything from a wilderness hike to the aftermath of a major disaster. 
Check them out at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. In a disaster, you'll be glad you did. And welcome back to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And our guest today is our good friend Dave Duffy. Dave Duffy is the founder, publisher, and editor of Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home Magazine was founded in 1989 after Dave worked for years as a journalist for newspapers and later as a writer and editor for the Department of Defense. Unhappy with working for others and living near cities, who isn't, he spent several years building his own home in southern Oregon. After his successful exit from the rat race, he started Backwoods Home Magazine to help other people do the same. Please welcome Dave Duffy. Dave, you there? Yes, I am. How are you? I, I am not doing so well today. Is he here? I am, You're I'm sitting stumbling. right next to him, honey. I am stumbling over my words. And it's okay, sweetie. I we am, had a long day today yes, at the Mother Earth News, News Fair. At the Mother Earth News Fair, where Dave Duffy was there with his uh, awesome uh, wife, Lini, and his family as well. I mean, All how many of, How many of your kids were there? By, by the way, welcome Lini Duffy. Say hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so who was there today from your family? Uh, today we had my sister Cindy out and my nephew Joshi from Winnipeg, Canada. And yesterday our other boys all were there at the booth at some point. Sammy, Robbie, and Jacob. And Annie. This is a real family affair. It really is a mom and pop operation if you think about it. I mean, if the people that are, are doing the, the work to make the Backwoods Home a success are people that are related by blood for for the most part. I think that is awesome. I mean, where, where else do you find that kind of... And you of... guys get along so well. Right, and then Annie was a little girl when Dave and I first met. She was only seven when we met, and then she became our senior, our, our managing editor for a, for a number of years, so she's a chip off the old block. She grew into it. Now, did you expect when she was in high school that she might look forward to being part of the magazine and have this active role? You know, I always thought that she would uh, enjoy working for the magazine. She always did, even when she was a little girl, and so she kind of grew into it, and that she always had really good language skills and editing skills. She's a chip off the old block, like I say, as far as her abilities to edit, copy, and Dave, of course, is the top dog of as, as editors go and then now Annie is a uh, um, uh, a farmer girl on her own farm and she has grown into it because I think of all of the wealth of information that she has studied and read in the pages of our own magazine these these are people that talk to talk and they walk the walk and I think that we better listen to them if we're going to be self-sustainable if we're going to be able to deal with things and be self-reliant. Dave, I'd like to know a little bit about your journey. I mean, it sounds like... The beginning. Yeah, let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from? Anyhow. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, you've been there for... Uh, you, you left Boston around when? I hitchhiked to uh, cross-country to California when I was 20 years old. I just wanted to go wow. on an adventure. And eventually I went back out west to work as a... Uh, after the army to work as a newspaper reporter for the various newspapers, Lowell Sun, chief among them, and a couple of papers in uh, California. And I'll, I'll tell you that I, I'm very, I'm pretty impressed by that this kind of sort of rugged individualism. Just 
at the age of 20 just to decide you're going to walk out of your folks' house, I guess, and and head over to the other coast and, and make a life for yourself. I think that, that I went out on the Massachusetts Turnpike. I said to my uh-huh. friends, I'm going west. I put, stuck my thumb out. And I, initially, the first summer, I only hitchhiked to Chicago, got myself a job there and came back. And uh, next time, I stuck my thumb out and I made it to California. <laughs> how, how did you... I, I, I've been to your house and I see how handy you are. Where did you learn how to put all these things together? I mean, you can pretty much build your own house. Indeed, you did that. You're, you actually did that. In uh, it, it didn't really house, right. come natural. Uh, when I started Backwoods Home Magazine, I, I uh, initially dr- kind of dropped out of the rat race when I was uh, about 40. I was just unhappy. By that time, I was working for the defense industry unhappy with my job, quit my job, subsequently got divorced, and uh, I moved to the woods in Oregon, and I said, there's got to be something else to life than this. And I kind of recall the promise I made to myself around the time I had hitchhiked across the country. I said, I want to be able to look in the mirror when I'm 50 and like who I saw. I, I made that uh, promise to myself when I was about 20. I want to like who I saw. By the time I was 40, making a good living in the defense industry, I didn't like who I saw. And I said, uh, time is running out. So I quit the rat race and I moved to the woods in Oregon and I began building a, a house. I had no particular skills. I made an awful lot of mistakes. I had to tear out a lot of stuff. I eventually built a house after several years and uh, I decided, well, I really have to make a living now. How am I going to do that? And I said, I'll show other people how to build a house. I went into the woods with no skills, succeeded in building a house, taught myself. I'll show other people. And initially, I was going to do that by writing a book. But to sell the book, I had to advertise it. So I said, I'll start a magazine to advertise it. <laughs> well, I still haven't finished the book. And back with the magazine caught on. I've got to tell you that, you know, listening listening to your history, I think uh, everybody in our audience would would like to know more about your worldview. I mean, this is you you must have a very interesting take on uh, recent events and 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 just on life and life in general. I think uh, we'd all love to hear it. I'm mainly a person who believes everybody should be self reliant. I wasn't always like that. When in my younger years, I was as liberal as any college student, uh, I guess they call them progressive today. As I grow older, like most people, I became more conservative. But basically, I believe uh, people should be able to take care of themselves. They shouldn't uh, expect other people to either give them a job or give them much help. Just uh, do everything yourself. So I, I tend to... You know, have you know, have your own business, build your own house, whatever it is. Have a garden. Take care of yourself and take care of your family. If everybody did that in America, America would be an even greater country than it already is. Well, how about America? I mean, are things hunky dory here? Are we going to hell in a handbasket? What's the deal? I I don't think we're going to hell in a handbasket. Things could be better. I mean, I mean, uh, we're better off than the rest of Europe. Uh, Europe is mm-hmm. going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, <laughs> But we're not doing that bad. There's a lot of Americans uh, who take care of themselves. You know, we have two higher rates of welfare and things like that. But uh, we still have the work ethic here. 
America still produces most of the innovations in the world. The, 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 the Asians and the Europeans are very good at mass producing the stuff, but a lot of your ideas, most of your ideas still come out of America, and I, I think it's just part of uh, who we are. So we still have the work ethic in spades. Let's talk about Backwoods Home magazine a little bit more. I mean, it must be hard to get together talent to to write articles on all these different subjects. Is that how you how did, how did you start getting these people, or or did you wind up writing most of the stuff yourself? Or tell me about for the that. first couple of issues. Uh, I didn't have any kind of staff, of course. You know, I'm I'm trying to show people uh, how to build a house in the woods, and because I, I, I grew a garden and stuff like that. And so I had uh, six or seven pseudonyms, a couple of females, names like <laughs> Maureen O'Hara, because I knew people didn't want to read everything by one guy. But by the time the first couple of issues came out, I started attracting the notice of some other people who said, hey, I kind of do stuff like that too. I like uh, what you're talking about, and I can write about uh, maybe it's a craft, maybe it's a gardening, maybe it's a, a solar system, uh, stuff like that. And and around around that time, too, I met my wife, Eileen, a school teacher, and she said, hey, I kind of like what you're doing, too. How about if I typed your articles in and I helped you run the business? So uh, I, between my wife, Lini, uh, doing that and finding a smattering of writers, that's where I fit my, 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 one of my most uh, popular writers, John Silvera, and uh, you know people like Jackie Clay had not come along, Masada Aoub had not come along, you know, the real famous people. But I started getting writers, and it started taking off. And I was a, I had been a, a former newspaper reporter in my younger years, and I was very good at it, and I'm a good wordsmith, so I knew I could edit uh, various types of writing mm-hmm. and make it uh, readable, accessible, I call it, to the readers. And it just took off. You know, another reason I think why the magazine became so successful, especially in the early years and why it was able to take off, is that you can probably even hear it in his voice. Dave is a is a wealth of positive energy and always has been. And there were a number of people that helped us in the early days of the magazine. And it, it, was, it was Dave's positive energy that just kind of drew us along. And we all just started helping. And, and you know what, mushroomed from there. We, we really, um, it, it's definitely a family-run business, but it was Dave's impetus with that positive energy yeah. that got us all going. Lenny, when I think of the words positive energy, I actually have a picture of you comes in my mind. Yeah, I, I think that you have as positive an outlook on just about everything in life as as anyone and tell me a little bit about your role in uh, Backwoods Home and and how you've helped the the magazine develop well here's a little tiny story in a nutshell Um, in the early days of the magazine I think this was even before Dave and I were married he uh, took one of his bank statements from the magazine business and he looked at it and he put it in the trash can. And I said, Dave, you can't do that. He threw away the bank statement. And he just looked at me and he said, I just did. And I took that bank statement out of the trash can and I've been doing the books ever since. So I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the detail monitor for a lot of the little details. But he, he was the one who always had the, the vision. And so we were, we've made a good team, that's definitely for sure. And this is now actually 24. 
five years? We're in our 26th year. 26 years. Uh, how many mag- is, has it been always a monthly? or, or uh, uh, Every quarterly? other month. Every other month, bi-monthly. Wow. And uh, tell me a little bit about how the magazine, either of you, Lini or, or Dave, tell me a little bit about how the magazine has evolved. Now, uh, I know that in the last few years you've added a number of uh, preparedness-type uh, articles or preparedness it's, it evolved primarily from a 40-page magazine to a 100-page magazine very quickly, and we've stayed 100-page uh, over the years. Not Very rarely we'll do a 116-page. It's called a signature, an extra 16 pages. Mm-hmm. But we've been fairly true to our roots. We've always talked about self-reliance, preparedness. They call it preparedness now. I guess now they even call it prepping and stuff mm-hmm. like that. We've always just referred to it as self-reliance, same thing, do everything yourself. It's not just, uh, you you don't have to build your own home, but do something, build a chicken coop, grow your own food, can, you know, just take care of yourself, and uh, we all have almost always had a smattering of politics, and I happen to be a libertarian a la uh, Rand Paul, mm -hmm. Ron Paul, stuff like that, (laughs) along that line, so... We've uh, been pretty much the same. We've always talked preparedness as far as I can remember. We've talked about preparedness, but we've also, I think one of the benefits of the of the kind of magazine we have and why we have such a loyal readership is because people feel like they know us. They've seen Annie grow up from a little girl into a, a charming woman with three kids and, and living the life that we've all read about in the magazine. And they saw the boys grow up. And and so many times, I, I actually wish I had a nickel for how many times people said, I feel like I know you. And they wait with bated breath, actually, for the magazine to come in their mailbox. They're very excited to have that come. And so many times people have said, I've canceled all my other subscriptions, but yours, yours really means something to me. I want to keep taking it. I think the key to the whole thing also has been we've maintained quality. Right from the beginning, I never came from a publishing background. I came from a writing background. And I didn't realize magazines typically sell ads. I came in with the idea that magazines sold information. I didn't understand the magazine model so we've always paid attention to quality. We never went to print with an article that we thought was, uh, oh, this is just a lead-in to somebody's ad uh, so they can sell a product. And so I think that was a little bit of ignorance on my part that paid off. It turns out there was an audience out there for uh, in-depth quality articles that didn't lead into the advertising. So that was an accident. So once we realized that was going even today... A lot of magazines have 50%, 60% advertising content. I don't think we've ever been over 15%. Now we're probably 12%. And I once raised the advertising rates to my advertisers because I wanted to cut them back. I didn't want so many advertising because I realized quality articles sell, and that was what I was about. And I started attracting quality writers, like a Masada Oob. Uh, on guns was famous long before I started my magazine when I took my concealed carry course way, way back. His book was required read it. I remember I, I happened to uh, ask somebody who was going up to visit Masada Rube, would he want to write for me? 
And he said, sure. He tried it. He liked it. He recognized quality. He's been with us for, what, 15, 16 years. And we found people like Jackie Clay, Patrice Lewis, Jeffrey Yeagle on, on energy, and just, just a whole slew of people. Of course, you know, John Silvera, tremendous researchers, people who have actually done what they're writing about. And they never let down on the quality. And I'm a very good editor. I would not take my foot off the accelerator. I'm, I demanded quality. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there are a lot of people that have a, a lot of great information but really have difficulty imparting that information in a readable way. And so it really, doesn't it really, doesn't the editor really make the magazine? Uh, it does. I don't like to blow my own horn that much, but <laughs> oh, it does. You need a blow person <laughs> who understands language. Uh, I think it helped me uh, being in the defense industry, working with electrical engineers, writing about missile systems and ship systems, being able to transfer what they designed and what they built into uh, the man on the ground, you know, in this case, the, uh, the Navy men who had to operate missile systems. So I could, tra- I could uh, make uh, the complex understandable. In the case of homesteading, it's not that complex, but it still has to be presented in a coherent format, and we could always do that. But you, every magazine needs that key person who makes sure the article is, I like to use the word, accessible to the readership. So they read it, and they said, boy, that was an easy read, and I learned something besides I think that's the key. If you can put things in plain English and you, ways that anyone can understand, people get a lot more out of it and they want to read more. They, they want to read more of what you put together. And another part of that is the fact that you can have amazing experts, people who know their field and have lots and lots of professional experience, but they can't communicate without using terminology that goes above people's heads. And what most people don't want to read is something they can't comprehend. So when you bring that language down to understandable language and they feel that they're, as if they're talking to a peer who might have some knowledge, but they're understanding it, that's where you grab those readers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's very true, very true. Because uh, when I speak about medical issues, and when you speak about medical issues, we always make sure that we speak in, in layman's terms and we avoid uh, medicalese jargon. And I think it, it comes across better to, to the average person, and it's more useful to the average person. It's something they can process, and sometimes they can inco- and it's something they can incorporate into their own preparedness uh, or self-reliance plan. And I think that's exactly why, or at least part of it, why Backwoods Home Magazine is so amazingly successful. It is accessible to the average person. Absolutely. I think one person said today at the trade show where we were, in fact, I heard this many times from a variety of people, they say you give information so that somebody can take it and actually do the the uh, project or the activity that you're talking about. It, you give the steps, it's how-to, it's very clear. And what could be more important than that? Tell me a little bit about what you envision uh, the future of Backwoods Magazine to be. What, what, is there a direction you'd like to go? Are you happy where you're at? Uh, I think it's going fine the way it is. The question among all publishers 
is what role will uh, the digital world play? Mm. What are, what's the future? Are people going to want to keep reading books on paper? I think if you're above a certain age, you do. But the younger generation, and my own kids are good proof of that, like things in digital format or like things in uh, audio format. So all publishers have kind of figured this out. And, of course, you can see the uh, number of newspapers and magazines that are folding. I think it's at a rate of about 15% a year of all publications yeah, are uh, just collapsing because they can't transition to this new age. Backwards Home Magazine is, uh, is transitioning a bit. We're, we have 6,000 subscribers on Kindle. we got a DVD and a... CD that are popular. We got a website with, uh, I think it's up to 450,000 unique visitors. Facebook page has 413,000 likes. And uh, so we're kind of transitioning there, but the bulk of our readership is still in the print world. And we'll have to see what transpires. But we'll probably keep the same message uh, how to self reliance information, uh, you know as we've always done. Tell us a little bit about uh, the anthologies that you've put together. Well, we have a big demand for back issues because we sell out of back issues very quickly. And in a magazine that's in its 26th year, maybe we have uh, a dozen or a dozen and a half back issues available. So what we do as we run out of the back issues, we strip out the ads for that year, six issues in a year, and we combine them in an anthology. So we have now 21 paper anthologies, and we're preparing a couple of more as we speak. Should be ready maybe in another couple of months, and they sell like hotcakes. A lot of our earlier anthologies from our first several years have gone through three, four. I think the first one has gone through even five printings. And uh, we're kind of evolving now into uh, a Foxfire series type of publication. We've paid so much attention for 25 years about the quality of the material. It's still in uh, big demand, all the old articles are. So the, the anthologies are like those old Foxfire books that still sell so well. Well, we got a big demand for them, so uh, we just keep producing and people keep buying them. Lenny, these articles uh, that uh, our audience can find in the various anthologies that uh, Backwoods Home has put together are pretty evergreen, aren't they? I mean, they're, you, could, you could have an anthology or a collection of articles from 10 years ago and have it still be pretty useful today. Right. I was talking to uh, a, a reader who came by the booth at our fair today, and they were wondering about the various anthologies, and I, that was my comment to them. I said, you can go way back to the best of the first two years, and much of that information is still valid. Now, obviously, some of the, the solar, uh, you know, the, uh, the more technical types of things, the alternative energy things, that, that has obviously changed over the years. And, and, but still, there's a lot of bread and butter information way back from the early years of the magazine. You grow a garden the same way today as you did 25 years ago. You raise your chickens and your goats the same way. You build your house pretty much the same way, except maybe you'll substitute a, a Trex deck, which is plastic and sawdust, for the old redwood deck. <laughs> but a lot of things uh, don't change much when you're building a homestead. Right. One of the most popular articles we've ever done over the years has been this little tiny article. I don't know if it was one or two 
pages. It was how to build a solar oven. And so oh. people could go way back to, I don't know how many years ago we published that article, and, and that information is still good. And indeed, pretty much just about all the information you'll find in Backwoods Home is going to be useful for your plan for self-reliance. And, and I want to thank Dave Duffy. I want to thank Lini Duffy for coming on with us. I want to apologize for my occasional uh, brain spasms. That <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's been a long day, yeah. sweetheart. But it, 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 it's tough to be the least coherent person in a, in a room, but I think I handled that job pretty well. So thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for having me. And Lini. Thank you. It's been a okay. pleasure. And I hope that everyone out there will get a subscription to Backwoods Home Magazine. Believe me, you'll get a wealth of information and you will not regret it. Hey, it's time to say a great big thank you to all the great networks that carry our show, especially the Prepper Broadcasting Network, the USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, the Survival Central Radio, Shake and Wake Radio, RoundTheCabin.com, all the networks that play our podcasts and uh, we also, by the way, hold a video cast that we do the first and third Wednesday of each month. So mark your calendars, check it out at aroundthecabin.com forward slash Wednesday. We do it in collaboration with the nice folks at aroundthecabin.com. Now, of course, you can listen to our archive audio podcast whenever it's convenient for you just by clicking the podcast button on the pretty blue toolbar at www.doomandbloom.net. And lastly, we want to thank our listeners for their kind words and support for our mission, which is to put a medically prepared person in every family. Thanks for checking out our books and DVDs and for checking out our entire line of medical supplies and kits at our shop at store.doomandboom.net. There's something there for every need at a reasonable price. Take a look. Fill those holes in your medical storage. And hey, if you got the time to put this stuff together all on your own, please don't buy it from us. Just get the stuff on the list we freely publish and get off your duff lazy bones. Otherwise, get a kit designed by a doctor and a nurse practitioner. You know that mild injuries can sometimes be detrimental to the effective functioning of members of your survival group. Now, although perhaps not as life-threatening as a gunshot wound or a fractured thigh, nail bed injuries are pretty common. And they're going to be more so when we're required to perform carpentry jobs or heavy lifting, or other duties that we may not be performing on a daily basis now. Your fingernails and toenails are made up of protein and a tough substance called keratin, and they're similar to the claws of animals. When we refer to issues involving nails, we refer to it as being ungual, from the Latin word for claw, unguis. Now, the nail consists of various parts. Uh, the nail plate, or body of the nail. This is the hard covering of the end of your finger or toe, what you would normally consider to be your nail. The nail bed, which is the skin directly under the nail plate, and that's made up of dermis and epidermis, the two layers of your skin, just like the rest of your skin. Uh, the superficial epidermis moves along with the nail plate as it grows. The vertical grooves attach the superficial epidermis to the deeper layers of the skin, the dermis, and in older people, folks like me, the nail plate thins out. You can see the grooves if you look closely. I mean, like all skin, blood vessels and nerves run through the nail bed. And then there's the nail matrix, the portion or root at the base of the nail under the cuticle that produces new cells for the nail plate. You can see a portion of the matrix in the light half moon visible at the base of each nail. They, that's actually called the lunula because it's like a moon. Now, this 
determines the shape and the thickness of the male of the nail. If you have a curved matrix, it produces a nail that is curved. If you have a flat one, it produces a nail that's flat. Now, in some nail injuries, like avulsions, the nail plate is ripped away by some form of trauma. The, the nail may be partially or completely lifted up off of the nail bed. Uh, ordinarily, depending upon the type of trauma, they do x-rays to rule out a fracture of the digit. Uh, but of course, in times of trouble, you might not have this available if modern medical care isn't available. But you can do these things. You could consider uh, numbing the area with ice, or if you have, happen to have lidocaine, you can perform a digital block. You'll find actually an article on doomandbloom.net on exactly how to do that. Uh, you clean the nail bed thoroughly with uh, saline solution if it's available. Irrigate out any debris. Uh, paint it with a little iodine. By the way, if uh, you don't have saline solution, you'd like to make it, basically take a pan, a lid, uh, sterile canning jars and sterile canning lids, and put a liter of water and two teaspoons of salt into the pan. Boil it for 15 minutes with the lid on. Allow it to cool with the lid on and then place it in the sterile canning jar and close it with the sterile canning lid. And it should last for a good 30 days or so or 48 days after you open it up again. Uh, 48 hours after you open it up again, sorry. <clears throat> Once you've cleaned the nail bed thoroughly, cover the exposed and very sensitive nail bed with a dressing. Uh, we like non-adherent dressings, uh, things you would use for burns, things like tulfa dressings. Uh, you might add some petroleum jelly in between uh, to provide an extra layer of protection. And this is something that you'd have to change frequently. You should avoid ordinary gauze that sticks pretty tenaciously and can be painful to remove, especially from the nail bed. Uh, if you see the nail uh, plate, the body of the nail hanging by a thread, you can remove it by separating it from the skin folds using a you can use a small surgical clamp for this. You can trim it back if you need to. You can consider placing the nail plate on the nail bed as a protective shield. I mean, it's dead tissue, but it might be the most comfortable op option to give you a little support there. Uh, avoid scraping off loose edges. It might affect the nail bed's ability to heal. Now, if the nail bed is lacerated, in other words, if there's a cut into the nail bed, you might have to suture it uh, if the wound is clean with the thinnest needle that or thinnest string and needle that you possibly can. Uh, they usually use in medical offices something like 6O Vicryl. If you listen to our previous shows regarding suturing, you'll know what both of those mean. Now, you always make sure to remove any nail plate, any hard nail tissue over the laceration area so that the suture repair will be complete. Uh, you can put a fingertip dressing on. Those are commercially made, or you can just make your own. And this will help immobilize a, the digit along with perhaps a finger splint. Might not be a bad idea. Uh, Sam splints make a, a very workable one. And I would consider a course of antibiotic if you think the nail bed was contaminated with debris. And we've talked about antibiotics and, and how to accumulate those in the past on on this show. Now there are crush injuries also that could occur uh, that that could damage the nail. Uh, striking your nail plate with a hammer was, is a I guess the classic example. Sometimes you can get a bruise under the nail or even a collection of blood. A collection of blood we would call a, a hematoma and 
These will be painful, but ordinarily pain will subside over within an hour or two. If the collection of blood is significant, however, it could be painful for several, even hours, maybe even days after the event. This area will appear brownish-blue. If it's a lot of blood, it will appear almost blue-black, deep, deep and blue-black. Uh, for a bruised nail, you don't have to do very much other than give maybe some ibuprofen. But for a significant hematoma, sometimes there is a procedure done uh, that can be done by the average person called truffination. And in this case, what you would do is you take a little, either a little fine drill or a hot, 18, uh, hot needle, a 18-gauge needle would be a good size. Even a paper clip would be good. And, and heat it up and make a hole in the nail plate, just sort of bore a hole in the nail, nail plate or use the heat to make your hole. Uh, this has to be large enough to, to relieve pressure from the blood that's collected under the nail, and you can tell if it is because the blood will start coming out. And uh, the important thing is just not to go too far in and just don't, don't go into the nail bed. This is a procedure that you shouldn't perform unless absolutely necessary. The pain will eventually decrease over time by itself. You don't want to further injure a nail bed. If you can grin and bear it, you might consider just doing that. Keep the finger dry and splint it and bandage for 48 hours afterwards if you do do the procedure. It's important to know that the damage at the base of the nail, which is called the germinal matrix, might be difficult to completely repair. You know, future nail growth might be deformed in some way. In situations where modern medical care is available, a hand surgeon is often called in to give the injury the best chance to heal appropriately, but even then, a higher incidence of issues such as ingrown nails may occur. A uh, completely torn off nail takes about four to six months, maybe more, to grow back. Patience is a major virtue with regards to the healing process in nail bed injuries. We just have a few minutes left in our show, and I know that you're thinking about a new project. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing, Amy. Well, I found a waterproof case, and you, my darling, have been asking for my medical bags to be packed in waterproof cases, and I have found the solution. Well, that's I'm awesome. I'm so excited. Yay. Well, that, well, that's awesome. You know, we have a lot of people that are boaters. We have a lot of people mm-hmm. that uh, are in wet conditions and, and concerned about the their medical supplies being uh, uh, ruined by water. And they float, so you might be able to use it as a flotation device, too. We put it in the pool and... Pushed it underwater. And these are cases? Came right back up, yep. What do they look like? Yes, there are cases. They look exactly like Pelican cases because the guy who made them used to work for Pelican. Except he found an economical solution. Get it done yourself. And don't be a giant company with a bunch of overhead. If you you work for Pelican, do you get paid in fish? Or what? How, how, does that, how does that work? If he's a, a pelican worker. You get flight hour credits. I don't know. <laughs> so, yes. I am going to add to my projects, putting two or three of the different kits in various size cases, and we'll see how it goes. Or oh. adding it as an option to yes. have the bag in that case. So... I will have the bag as packed that I usually do. And you can select a different product with it packed, same contents, in the hard case. Yeah, and you have different sizes, so it'll be different types of kits. Yeah, I do. I think that's really awesome. Still in the creative stage, but it's coming. 
And All we're right. going to be going, moving on to Hampton, Virginia. That's right. We're going to be there in the middle of uh, July. Do you know the dates? I, I think it was July 19th, something like that. And uh, It's a whole weekend. It's not just a one-day event. And um, the great thing about it is it's in another state. I know we just talked about Oregon, or- Oregon, Oregon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> this time. But we really, we have been to Virginia, and we do um, love history, and yes. what a great state for history. Okay, that's all the time we have for this week. We appreciate your listening to our show, On the Road, in the beautiful state of Oregon, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.